Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Erin Butler, who's an SLP with a master's degree from Bowling Green State University in Ohio. She has 10 years of clinical experience in the skilled nursing and long-term care setting. Erin is certified in vital STEM, SEMG, head and neck PENS, myofascial release, and other manual techniques in dysphagia management, MDTP, and was previously a certified dementia care specialist. She has earned multiple ASHA ACE awards. Erin, assisted by a fellow OTR and CODA, developed a person-centered Montessori-based dementia program to provide residents opportunities to live more satisfactory lives, decrease falls, reliance on medications and caregiver burden, and improve communication, ADL, speeding, and more. Since piloting this program, all of the facilities within her company have initiated or are in the process of implementing this dementia program. Erin and her team have had numerous opportunities to share their work with other professionals at state conventions and universities. Erin is passionate about improving the care and lives of those with dementia and thoroughly enjoys treating swallowing disorders as well. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good afternoon, Erin. Hi, Teresa. So thank nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad thank, and grateful for everything you've contributed to the collective, and I'm so glad that we've connected. Absolutely. I can't wait to share what I've got today. Good. Awesome. So yeah, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am Erin Butler. I am a 2012 graduate from Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Um, upon graduating, I had accepted a job in a skilled nursing and long-term care facility 
and didn't realize at that time that I would fall in love so much with the the population. So here I am 10 years later, still working in the geriatric population. And it's been a lot of fun. And I've learned a lot from those individuals that I serve. So it's, it's definitely, you know, a learning curve every day. Um, But I wouldn't be anywhere else. It's, it's been a pleasure. I have served as a clinical supervisor for a handful of graduate student clinicians and clinical fellows. And as you mentioned, had a few contributions to the MedSLP Collective. So have had some experience in working with some of the other MedSLP mentors and getting to know some of the other group members. So I thank you for that opportunity. Yeah. I obviously have a strong passion given the topic today for dementia and dysphagia. So wanted to talk about, you know, when dysphagia meets, uh, when dementia meets dysphagia, when they co-occur, what the role of the speech language pathologist is and how we can help caregivers to optimize mealtime. Yes. I love this. I love this topic so much. I know that you probably know how much I love SNFs too. Mm -hmm. So Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm so glad to be talking to another fellow SNF lover because I don't know, you know, what it is, but I just, I love the setting. I know a lot of people Mm -hmm. don't like it, but I just, I love it. And I still have so many amazing memories from so many patients that I saw over the years Mm -hmm. in the SNFs. And I I love this topic because I'm sure, you know, you can speak too as to when, you know, you first got out of grad school and started working, we really didn't do much with patients with dementia. They just Mm -hmm. sort of said like, it is what it is. It's end of life. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not recovered, you know, Medicare won't pay for it. You know, we just heard all the typical one-liners and I just love to see how we're really doing so much more to support these patients and support their families now. And, you know, we have research to support what we're doing and, and getting some outcomes for them. So yeah, I'm so excited to have you talk about this. Yep. You're, you're absolutely right. And a couple of the things that I'm going to talk about today, we'll touch on that, you know, how, the tides have turned and not being afraid of picking up somebody with dementia because, well, they're just going to get worse anyways. There's so much we can do to help optimize and capitalize on, on their strengths and where they're at and how to modify, you know, our approach and the environment. So we will jump right in. Yeah. Um, So you and I, and everybody listening knows mealtime and food and drink, it brings us a lot of pleasure, Right. You think about getting together and catching up with a friend. You're probably going to be talking about where do you want to meet? What restaurant or, you know, what bar can we have drinks at or, you know, what winery? Or you're planning for holidays and the family's trying to figure out who's bringing what and what's the main dish or what drinks can I bring? You know, what what wine do you like or what mixed drinks can I bring? So for most of us, that does bring a lot of pleasure and our lives revolve around eating and drinking. But for individuals with dementia, we know that they have changes in their cognition and their communication, but also their sensation, their appetite and their ability to eat and to drink. So it's going to be, you know, a shift from where they used to be to where they are now. And that that mealtime is going to look a little bit different. I wanted to go over a few statistics first, just on dementia and dysphagia. So currently 55 million individuals worldwide have dementia 
And that number is projected to grow by 10 million annually, which is pretty shocking. Given that rate of growth is so staggering, healthcare providers do struggle to maintain mealtime pleasure for individuals with dementia and providing them with optimal nutrition and hydration. As far as the nursing home population, currently 50% of those individuals have dementia and 45 to 57% of those with dementia have dysphagia. So we're talking a great deal of those individuals if you're if you're treating in the skilled nursing facility. In these individuals, it's not uncommon for them to refuse to eat or drink. And caregivers often interpret this resistive uh, behavior as adverse, maybe an un- unwillingness or a refusal to eat. But we do know that psychogenic anorexia can be common in the older adult population, especially at the end stages of a debilitating disease such as dementia. What we can do is promote a quality of exchange between the caregiver and an individual with dementia, though, to have a positive influence on the amount of food that can be consumed. Nearly half of those with dementia require assistance during meals, which can result in that diminished safety and nutrition if the caregivers are not specifically trained on the proper feeding techniques and approaches. So it's imperative that the caregivers adapt their care approach and their environment to fit the needs of this dementia population because they're going to count on us as professionals as their disease progresses to help them maintain that nutrition and hydration. So when that dysphagia meets dementia or vice versa, we as speech language pathologists play a vital role on the interdisciplinary team. And we should be a cornerstone in that care until the end of life in this population. But we must understand the appropriate assessment tools, treatment methods, and then be able to train the caregivers throughout that disease progression. Um, Leslie Rourke had a wonderful, two wonderful podcasts with you, podcast 42 and 43, talking about the assessment and treatment of dementia with dysphagia. So today we're going to focus primarily on what we as caregivers and clinicians can do to optimize our approach in that environment to help maintain success with meals. There was a really interesting study done by Amela in 2002, and I love this quote. They said, mealtime is a dance between partners. One partner's actions influence the others. So I thought that was pretty powerful. Yeah. You think about, well, you may not think about actually the influence that you may have. You know, you think about the everyday person, maybe feeding somebody with dementia or assisting at a meal. And you might not think about that impact that you have and what your words, what your actions are going to have on perhaps their willingness or amount of food that they're going to eat. When in all actuality, the amount of food that one consumes with dementia is influenced by that quality of exchange between nursing home residents and that caregiver. So they did a study with a large 520-bed nursing home, and that study included 53 caregivers who were CNAs, 
and 53 residents with late stage dementia. So of those residents, just to give you some background information, their mini mental status examination averaged a 4.2. Their global deterioration scale was a 6.1. They averaged 5.65 years in a nursing home and 59% of those individuals were on a pureed diet. And then they did exclude any residents who were on a calorically restricted diet or who were tube fed. Some measurement tools that they used to establish some variables and baseline data were the Enberg Feeding Evaluation in Dementia, the Interaction Behavior Measure, and then the Modified Version. And they used those to measure the resident and the CNA behavior during these interactions. So the findings of the study really weren't too surprising. The they were lumped into two groups. So there were 23 resistors and there were 23 labeled as the acceptors. The meal portion consumed for the resistors was 51% of the meal. And with the acceptors, it was 72%. It took the resistors 18 minutes to consume the meal, whereas the acceptors only took 13.8 minutes. It wasn't surprising that oral residue was more with the resistor group than it was with the acceptor group. And also not surprising with those resistor groups, the CNA and the resident behaviors was more than with the acceptors. They also did find that the amount of food varied by day that was served. So that did have a little bit of an effect as well. And I want to preface this next part by just saying I have so much respect for CNAs. You know, I know they have a really tough job. They have a lot of work to do and they're underpaid. And especially right now with the pandemic, you know, it's challenging to find people to work. So that leaves those who are at the facilities swamped with the amount of, of care that they need to provide. Yeah. But they did have some additional findings. Um, residents were misinterpreted with these behaviors that they presented with. They were labeled as being uncooperative or lazy when attempting to refuse to eat or drink or couldn't swallow and or couldn't swallow as quickly enough as maybe they thought that the resident should be swallowing. And their positioning was suboptimal. They also were given inappropriate food textures and provided with too large of bites and fed too quickly. Some staffing issues were that there were insufficient staff numbers and training provided. Feeding was seized when the resident failed to open their mouth or accept the bolus or when they blocked it or tried to spit out the bolus. You know, they kind of just stopped feeding them saying, okay, we're done here, which, you know, I've seen I've seen happen before. If somebody's not educated on what kind of things can I do to help this individual eat, you know, you're liable to say, okay, well, we're done. Yeah. There were interruptions during meals. Trays were removed early. The CNAs had left to go feed others. And there were errors in reporting the amount of food that had been consumed. So the overestimation of 15 to 20% of a meal, actually. So this made me think too about you might be picking up a resident or getting a referral for somebody who is losing weight, but upon doing a chart review, you know, it's looking like while they're eating, 
they're eating 100% of their meals or they're eating, you know, 90% or whatever they need to uh, meet their needs. However, is that appropriate numbers? You know, are they tracking that appropriately? They found that the CNA's bothered and inflexible behaviors may have created an environment of excessive stress, resulting in dysfunctional behaviors determined by both the EdFedQ and the IBMM. So as a whole here, we know that the quality of exchange between the nursing home residents with the late stage dementia and their CNA did positively influence the amount of food that they consumed. Um, I have also included this really powerful quote. It does go back to 1969, but it's it's a good one. Every careful observer of the sick will agree in this, that thousands of patients are annually starved in the midst of plenty from the one of attention to the ways which alone make it possible for them to take food. And that was from uh, a book, actually a nursing book, A Nightingale, 1969, um, I thought that was really powerful. You know, of course, times have probably changed a bit from them and we're not actually maybe starving individuals from eating. Right. But we're maybe missing some of those cues that they're telling us, you know, that they're trying to block a food because, you know, you're, you're coming at me too quickly or you didn't tell me you were going to give me a bite It's it's also, it's so nuanced and it's tough because I know, you know, I've worked with some amazing, amazing CNAs and I just know, you know, on the flip side, you know, sometimes I would say things to the dietitian because they just want the volume in, you know, and I'm like, well, it's not about quantity. Sometimes it's about quality, you know, and, and I know there's such a, it's a tough dichotomy to balance. You know, the CNAs are hearing from the dietitian, how much food we have to get into them. And then they're hearing from us, all of these, you know, sort of different principles that we have to follow and, mm-hmm. and different therapeutic cues. And, and so I, I know it's, I know it's mm-hmm. so tough, but I think, you know, this is what screams to me about why it's so important for us to do in services with our CNAs and share with them, you know, what we do know, because I, a lot of it is just not, it is not intentional. It's just mm-hmm. ways Absolutely. that things used to be done or what you think is, is the best way to feed, you know, a patient with dementia. And, and a lot of times what we think is the best might be, harming them, but not in in an intentional way whatsoever. So, you know, I think arming yourself with all of this knowledge and then presenting it in service to the CNAs and the nurses is so important, you know, to be able to carry out these, these plans of care. Absolutely. You're right. And even just reviewing this study, it makes me feel just like, oh, you know, and I, I don't want anybody to look at them differently. You know, these, these staff members, but it is, it's, that's what it's about is us doing our education to help them understand. And even if the caregiver is maybe a spouse, you know, in home health, or, you know, you've got someone coming in from a hip fracture in the hospital, and you're going to be having them on caseload for a little while before they are ready to leave, you know, whatever setting you're in, educating those caregivers so we can really like you said, not just promote nutrition and hydration, but that quality of life is is a huge component, especially as we progress through the dementia stages and you weigh, you know, those, what's the most important thing now. And as we're nearing the end of life, you know, that quality of life really is, is up there in the importance, if not, you know, in my opinion, the most important. Yep. So first we're going to talk about 
what we can do as clinicians to train those caregivers. What are those specifics that they can do to enhance that quality of exchange and, and quality of mealtime when dementia is involved? So something as simple as sitting at the same level of a patient. You think about those times you've seen, or maybe you've done it yourself, you know, you're helping feed a patient, but they're in bed or they're in your their wheelchair and you're standing over them. And think about, you know, how uncomfortable or intimidating that would be if you were that person in that chair and someone's hovering over you, feeding you. Um, so just something as simple as that. Attending to the resident by addressing them as a person, identifying and paying attention to those meaningful patterns that they may be showing you in behaviors, sharing the experience with the individual and validating that social importance of meals. So I think about maybe during a meal, how awkward that could be for somebody being who needs to be fed or needs to be prompted. It's like, oh gosh, I don't want you staring at me again while I'm eating. So maybe you have a coffee and you're sipping on your coffee as you're, you're, you're helping to feed this individual. Um, or maybe it's Wednesday donuts. So you have a, a donut with them and make it feel more natural and welcoming. And that also serves as a visual model to them as well. Implementing some communication techniques. So using a reduced rate of speech to improve processing with concrete language and simple instructions. Um, and research tells us that five to nine words in length are optimal to assist in improving the short-term memory and processing of that information. So again, something simple you can train these caregivers on that maybe I had no idea of. Yeah. Avoiding negative comments about the food. So I know sometimes the food doesn't look the most appealing, right? Especially if they're on a modified diet. But avoiding saying things like, oh, gosh, like, I can't even tell what that is, you know, or, oh, I, I, I don't blame you for not wanting to eat. I wouldn't want to eat that either. Um, so just being conscious of saying, saying appropriate comments and avoiding those negative. And if you hear those things, maybe just using that as an opportunity to educate that, hey, that really can affect their intake at a meal and their pleasure with eating. Avoiding elder speak is another easy technique that we can implement. I, again, I don't think people in, it mean to do this and sometimes it's just a habit, but these individuals in these facilities are, have been around for a long time and are wise beyond our, my years. So talking to them, just like we would another adult, and providing cues as needed. So this might be a verbal cue like, hi, Karen, here is a bite of your mashed potatoes. Or now I'm going to give you a drink of your orange juice instead of just sitting there in a redundant process of giving them bites and drinks, actually notify them of what it is that they're consuming. Providing some tactile cues might be beneficial. So using careful hand feeding or pacing, providing normal bite sizes. And you might consider implementing or training a hand over hand approach or a hand under hand approach. So I don't know 
Teresa, if you've heard of Chipa Snow or the listeners have heard of Chipa Snow before. Yep. Yep. So she is an amazing occupational therapist who is so knowledgeable on the population with dementia. Um, and she actually talks about this hand under hand approach versus a hand over hand approach, which I thought is so interesting and it makes so much sense. So this approach is a guided assist of the palm under the hand, and it decreases that impulse to pull away when you might feel that urge if someone were to put their hand over your hand. So you think about, you know, loved one, we hold each other's hands, right? We're not, we're not grabbing hands. That's more of like an aggressive or can feel aggressive. Um, so for those individuals who are appropriate, maybe for for feeding themselves or that hand feeding, um, using that hand under hand approach could be a beneficial interesting. Yeah, I've, not, I've never heard of that, but it makes, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Have you, have you done that with many patients, Erin? I have not a ton. Um, I've, yeah. I've implemented it here and there, but I, I can definitely, um, see a difference in that calmness essentially. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's tough to use the word calm in these settings because I feel like meal times in a skilled nursing facility are anything but calm. But I know that's what You're we're right. what we're striving for. You're right. Yeah. All right. So next, we're going to talk about some environmental modifications. Stockdale and Amela in 2008 said, "How we eat, with whom we eat, and where we eat are meaningful to all of us." especially older adults living in nursing homes. So it's so true. You know, we all have our own routines when it comes to meals and who we eat with and where we want to eat. Um, And these individuals should have an opinion in that as well. Some environmental modifications that we can implement trial and train on can be simply being out of bed for meals. So this obviously improves positioning and alertness, can decrease that risk of aspiration during meals and after meals, and promotes that increased socialization if the patient can attend maybe a meal in the dining room. I know, especially with COVID right now, this has been a challenge with the staffing issues, you know, and getting patients out of bed. Um, But I've noticed you know, something as simple as getting the patient up in the morning for breakfast and sitting them in their wheelchair, in their armchair next to their bed, that act of getting out of bed, I'm now stimulated and I'm sitting upright. I'm not super comfortable in my bed like I was before covered up with blankets and dozing off. I'm now alert and that in and of itself can be beneficial for intake with meals. Adequate lighting. Um, Brush and Calkins in 2008 said that older individuals require three times the amount of light as younger individuals. So really keeping that in mind when you're looking at the environment that the patient's eating in. So I know some facilities have brighter lighting than others in the rooms, while some have other other facilities may have very dim lighting. So Talking with this, the caregivers about maybe opening the blinds can be huge. You know, I I don't I think that when I ask if a resident needs would like their blinds open, most of the time they do. 
But do the caregivers maybe think about that? You know, they're worried about getting them dressed and getting them cleaned up and, you know, doing all the very pertinent things that need to be done every day where they might not even think about the blinds being opened. Maybe turning on the overhead light in addition to just the lamp being on and educating that, hey, did you realize that older individuals actually need three times the amount of lighting as we do? Um, yeah, because your average person doesn't know that that statistic there. Thinking about the place setting, so encouraging a clutter-free area, avoiding patterns, providing contrast from the bowl or the food to the plate and the plate then to the table. So you wouldn't necessarily want a white plate on a white placemat, you know, on a white table. It's all going to blend together and going to be harder for them to differentiate their food items from their placemat in their table, um, limiting the number of utensils and food or drink items that are on the table or on the tray. So you think about if, if you work in a hospital or a nursing home, you know, you think about a tray being delivered and all of the things on the tray, it's overwhelming. There's a plate with probably a plate warmer and a lid. And then there's several things on the plate to eat. And then you might have a bowl with fruit or a dessert in several cups. You've got the utensils wrapped in a napkin. You've got, you know, your condiments, your salts and your peppers. And the reason I'm going through all these things is to help you visualize and think like, oh my gosh, that actually is a lot of things and can be overwhelming for these individuals to process. What am I, what am I even supposed to do here with all of this, you know, um, or maybe there's so many food items that I'm just going to, it's not even worth it. I can't do it today. So some things that you can do is set up their food and, you know, help them with the condiments if they need help. When you're done with those condiments, instead of leaving the wrappers or the containers on the tray, remove them and set them aside or throw them away. Take their silverware out of their napkin because it's wrapped up and chances are they're not going to see it there. And if they don't see it, they're not going to realize I need to unwrap it and find this so I can eat. Um, you might see somebody feeding themselves um, something that they should be using a utensil for because they simply didn't know that the fork or the silverware was there. Maybe if they are eating something that they can just use their fingers for, just getting rid of the silverware, because that's one last thing that they have to look at or try to thumb through to get to their meal. We've also implemented using an approach of giving them just like a food item, an a drink item, and then checking back in a few minutes or, you know, five, 10 minutes, and then removing those items and then giving them a new item. And that really helps with attending to the meal. Think about seating arrangements. So things like placing a varying level of dementia together to serve as them being helpers. So maybe someone was a mother or a father throughout their lives um, or a stay-at-home mom or a teacher and they, they're like to be helpers, you know, that hasn't changed. They still like to be helpers. And if somebody needs help at their table, who's maybe a little bit lower level, that's a wonderful opportunity for them to fulfill that role of them being a helper. Sandman et al. 
1988 revealed a correlation between nursing staff being present at meals with an increased dependence. Whereas when no nursing was present, the residents were more apt to help one another. So I thought that was interesting. Maybe stepping back a little bit and, and seeing what they can do for themselves when appropriate. Yeah. Consider implementing feeding assistant groups, which are associated with improved fluid and food intake. Another um, mealtime environmental modification that you could make is thinking about the sounds and the noises present at a meal. So allow for familiar sounds, um, potentially turn down or off the television if this is going to be distracting, playing soft or age culturally appropriate music if desired. Um, This can reduce agitation during mealtime and may also have positive effects on feeding intake amongst those with dementia. And avoid interruptions. So I know some of these, we can't get around. Things happen. Meals can are going to be interrupted here and there. But in general, if we can help it, complete education with your nursing staff on scheduling medications and those blood draws, finger sticks, prior to or after the meal when possible. So thinking about this, um, like I, I can remember a resident at one point in time who had been provided with pre- their medication crushed puree middle of a meal. And then after that, shut down, didn't want to eat anything else. Um, so you can imagine if that becomes a pattern, you know, we could be missing a large chunk of that nutrition and hydration that could be provided in a day's time. Next, I'd like to talk about some cognitive interventions for mealtime. So we may opt to optimize or capitalize on the patient's strengths that are maintained despite that progression of the illness. So these might include things like space retrieval training. So we know space retrieval training capitalizes on that non-declarative procedural memory and stimulus-based training which are less impacted in dementia than the the declarative or the working memory is. So, you know, we know that individuals with dementia can still learn new information, such as swallowing strategies and recommendations that we provide. So we want to just be sure that whatever we're having them remember is meaningful and relatable and giving regular repetitive practice to provide that increased exposure to that information and improve that retention. So maybe Helen needs to do do a double swallow or take a liquid wash after you know each bite to help decrease that buildup of residue. So maybe we in therapy work on training, work on space retrieval training you know, Helen, what do you need to do after you take a bite and use that same question each time? And then we train the caregivers at mealtime to implement that question in that exact wording for carryover then. Implementing visual aids is another um, cognitive intervention that we can implement with this population. We know that the ability to read is often preserved later into the disease process. So this could be a great opportunity to serve as a memory aid. Some examples might be safe swallowing strategies or what foods are or not 
what foods are or are not on a diet. Some information from Brush in 2018 that's very interesting um, on the preferred presentation of visual aids for the aging and dementia population include providing large print with simple words and high contrast. Preferred typeface for these individuals is sans serif. And they prefer, yeah, who knew, right? Yeah. They um, prefer a colored background on their visual aid with white writing. And their colors preferred are blue, red, and green. You'll want to avoid all capital letters and consider signs in your facility being the same color depending on what area of the facility. So say your dining room signs are blue, your activity room signs are red, and maybe the signs in their room are green. And that's going to help them think, okay, I'm associating green with being in my room. Now, these are my visual cues for the dining room because they're blue would be the idea there. You can also laminate, you know, print and laminate things or use a picture frame. Um, They've got all kinds of different options for picture frames. You know, obviously you wouldn't want something with glass that could fall and break, but um, removing the glass or getting like those cheap little um, plastic clear picture frames and slide a visual aid in there and sit it, sit it upright at their dining room table or on the tray table in their room, just as a nice visual can go a long way. And just keep in mind, later stages of dementia may not be appropriate for just the visual aids and may require, you know, some additional verbal prompts or tactile cues. And if the individual wants to pay for their meal, by all means, let them pay for the meal. Um, Maybe you accept the meal ticket as their payment versus getting into an argument with the patient. Oh, no, no, you don't have to pay, you know. Um, And then that might offend them or make them feel, you know, like confused or incompetent of what's going on here. So just something as easy as, oh, yeah, here we go. You know, you're all paid up. So just a little little tip. It's it's so funny. I had that happen to me so many times before. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, what do I owe you for the meal? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, and and you're just your immediate response is, oh, you don't have to pay for it. You know, it's just you don't think about it. You're just like, oh, you don't have to pay for it. But then you know, to them, it's totally confusing. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had to get to the point where it's like gotten combative before. And, you know, it's like I said, totally not intentional, but yeah, these are, these are brighter and these are such Mm -hmm. good reminders for us to be cognizant of and things we don't even think of. And we need to. Sure. They're so little, they're little things and and not, not all of them will work for everybody or be appropriate for everybody. But if you do your education, you know, even fitting in little, you catch something here. Okay. I'm going to educate this person. And then maybe they realize, wow, that's really helpful. And then they tell the next aid and the next aid, you know, or you do an in-service and do, you know, some little demonstrations or something. It can, it can go a long way. Once it starts making sense, you know, they're not going to forget those little, little tips and tricks because ultimately it's going to make their lives easier as well. Right. Right. Alertness at mealtime. So if you have a patient whose eyes are closed Can they still follow some one-step commands or answer questions? Because if that's the case, they may perhaps be appropriate for intake. So, of course, when alert, we're going to optimize on providing the foods and the liquids versus their eyes are closed. They must be sleeping. We're going to push this meal back. Adaptive equipment 
may very well be appropriate for this population. And hopefully you're becoming or are best friends with your occupational therapist in your facility. Um, my occupational therapist and I have a great relationship and work together a lot, of course, with, with every resident um, who's appropriate, but especially with our dementia residents. Um, you know, they look to us at uh, for information on, you know, maybe what kind of cues does this patient need? Or, you know, can you help me out with this memory technique that they need to recall? Um, but we we can get help from them in lots of different areas, but especially with what, um, what utensils might be appropriate or what kind of modifications can we uh, put into place for these patients to help them be more successful with a meal. So, some things that we've implemented is serving food maybe in a bowl instead of on a plate, maybe giving them the bowl and just having them eat from that bowl and then giving them the next item with a bowl. Um, I don't know. There's something about like our, I think our bowls are like blue maybe, and it's just, it's contained to one little spot um, versus a plate that's bigger. And now I've got three items all together and, you know, things are falling off the plate. Um, so something as easy as that can go a long way. Um, there are plates with rims and edges. There's lots of different utensils, different handles, weighted utensils, larger handles. Um, so they, they would know what the best option would be for that. Maybe you recommend using a spoon instead of a fork to scoop the foods when appropriate, or maybe to the, they're to the point where we're recommending finger foods because a utensil is too, too challenging right now to understand in the illness where, you know, what do I have to do with this? It's we're beyond the ability to know to pick it up and to scoop and now bring it to my mouth. Whereas touching and feeling that food is natural. That's, you know, when we were babies and learning how to eat, we were picking up with our hands. There are different options for easy to grasp cups and bowl, uh, excuse me, cups and glasses. They have cups with suctions on the bottom. We, our OT just ordered one for somebody who, if you bump the cup, it won't fall over. But if you grab it and pick it up, it will pick up right from the, the table. It, it's wild. You know, maybe you implement cups with lids or, you know, there's all kinds of different options. So just some different ideas. And as the dementia progresses, you're going to think about collaborating with dietary or referring them to the dietitian to improve their nutrition outside of just mealtime when appropriate. So this may include, but isn't limited to some of these different strategies and techniques, um, hydration carts. So are they getting, you know, some fluids throughout the day aside from just mealtime, which we hope they are, but you, you want that to be delivered, especially for those individuals on thickened liquids, um, who maybe aren't getting readily available, the, the water pitcher throughout the day having your facility have a happy hour in the afternoons. I know this is a big hit in a local um, nursing home where a lot of family will come at, at happy hour and they have some different things going on um, at that time too. Giving snacks throughout the day, um, 
especially for those who are mobile, you know, they're up and moving. So they're going to be burning those calories throughout the day. Appetite stimulants and nutrition supplements may or may not be appropriate. Um, That would obviously be the call of your dietitian, but something to think about and collaborate with. And then as we get to the end stage of dementia and end of life, we as SLPs do have an important role in that palliative and hospice care when support and caregiver training and that interdisciplinary team collaboration becomes that primary focus. So we as clinicians should become familiar with our roles so that our personal discomfort doesn't impact the patient's care. Families at this stage, you know, may be concerned that their loved one's going to starve um, if they can't eat as they near the end of life. When in all actuality, withdrawing that nutrition at that stage can actually improve that individual's comfort. So I'll never forget, I had a a daughter of a resident come in and the patient was just not doing well um, and not wanting to eat. And their their loved one was so concerned, you know, well, what are you going to do? Like, are you just going to let my mom starve? And so that's where that knowledge base of all this information comes into play and in educating on, you know, actually this is what's happening to their body as that, as their disease progresses, um, which is a hard conversation, but it, it needs to happen. So they understand and, and maybe their feelings will shift then. Yeah. Can we, can we back up just a second, Erin? Is there, have you ever encountered a time when appetite stimulants were appropriate? And I only say that because I know like in, in the facilities I worked in, they gave them out constantly. Like it was mm-hmm. just, you have dementia, this is what you get. And I think it wasn't until people learned that like, no, this is part of the disease progression mm-hmm. that sort of the tides have changed. But now, you know, I'm wondering, is there, is there a time that it might be appropriate? Mm-hmm. I certainly think there there's a time and a place for for that. I um I haven't been seeing it as much honestly lately nor have I been kind of putting that bug into the physician or the dietitian's ear like I used yeah. to um because I know more about dementia now and what the body is doing. You know, I know for individuals with the component of like anxiety as well. Um, some of those medications can have like a dual effect of, of improving the appetite and decreasing that. So maybe perhaps in that, that type of situation that could be beneficial to them. Thank you. Sure. The American Geriatrics Society ethics states that feeding tubes are not recommended in older adults with advanced dementia and are associated with agitation greater use of physical and chemical restraints and greater healthcare use due to the tube related complications and pressure ulcers. And Lindsay Parker and Morgan Mendenhall did a podcast with you on episode 172 um, discussing the end of life feeding decision. So that was super um, interesting and packed with lots of, um, facts on this end of life. So if you guys haven't listened to that either, that would be an awesome one. So just in conclusion, you know, the the SLP, we as clinicians, we hold a valuable role in the care of individuals with dementia 
in order to promote that highest level of independence and safety and nutrition, hydration, and like we talked about that quality of life during all stages of the illness. So if we're knowledgeable on the assessment and treatment approaches, we are a large asset to educating those caregivers and working with that interdisciplinary team, you know, maybe even do an education with the physician or your dietary team and seeing if they are still, if they are on the same page as you and in the research of where dementia and nutrition is now. That way we're just providing the optimal care for our patients through that end stage of dementia. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Erin. This was so helpful. Those are so many, like so many actionable tips. I think, yeah. you know, what I want people to take away from this episode is not don't throw all of these, don't throw, you know, uh-huh. throw everything at the wall at once. Sure. But I think if you can 100%. even just take two or three of these back to your facility and implement right away, I think it would just make such a huge difference. And, um, you know, again, I think just educating the CNAs and the nurses, and I know there was a textbook, there was a, a textbook that nurses use a few, um, it came up a few years ago, that CNAs were basically taught this specific way of feeding patients. And it's just yeah. the total opposite of what research has shown us. And oh, so I no. think, you know, it's important to sort of have these mm-hmm. conversations to clarify, you know, well, this wasn't a textbook, but this is, you know, more recent information that we now know, mm-hmm. um, this might be a better way, better way to approach things. And yeah, that's so yeah. true. That makes me yeah. think of like, you know, clinicians who are wanting to do more, um, Maybe even, you know, the the students, they are at a, you know, you know, some sort of nursing students are at some sort of university or the yeah. CNAs are yeah. doing training somewhere. Although I know probably some of them are doing that online now too, but can you do, you know, an in-service with any of these individuals to help yeah. change yeah. that, that thought process? So that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. And you're awesome. so right. I agree um, that these are just tools in our toolbox. You know, we don't want to throw the kitchen sink, but, you know, trial and figure out what's going to work for this patient because everybody's going to be so different. So, yeah, you have the tools and the resources and now just got to figure out what's going to work. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you, Erin. Any final thoughts? Any? This was wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. No, I think that is it. And I, I have, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I hope that the other clinicians will benefit. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.